This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. In this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast, we got the chance to speak to UK astronaut Tim Peake about his new book, Swarm Rising, what life is like on the International Space Station and the future of human spaceflight. Hi, I'm Tim Peake. I'm an astronaut with the European Space Agency. I flew to the International Space Station in 2015 on a six-month mission. Uh, Before that, I was a military test pilot. I spent 18 years in the British Army Air Corps. Great, Tim. Um, Thanks very much for speaking to me today. It's it's great great to have you on the podcast. (laughs) Good to be here. Um, Yeah, I was was thinking it's it's actually um, five years since you since you, you finished your, your your first stint on the ISS and, and you landed. Um, I bet it doesn't feel like five years ago. Um, did, did... <laughs> so, some days it feels like just yesterday. Some days it feels like an awful long time ago. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, the memories of, of, of spaceflight are clearly very, very fresh in my mind still. And um, and still looking forward to, you know, what lies ahead in the future. So, um, and I, I'm working very much still very involved with the space agencies, both UK and ESA, um, and so and in collaborations of what we're doing for the future. So that keeps me very much tied to the, the work that I was doing with the space industry. Fantastic, yeah. I mean, one of the things that the reasons that our sort of paths have crossed is um, you've written quite a few books uh, since you've uh, since you landed and about your your time in the ISS and photos from space and things like that. But but now you're the, the book we're talking about today is uh, Swarm Rising, which is sort of a teen sci-fi like science fiction, isn't it? 
It is absolutely, yeah. It's a bit of, of a break, uh, break from the normal, and I've really enjoyed it. It's been such a, a lot of fun, actually. And and um, although it's a you know it's a it's a book for children, for teenagers, for young adults, it really tackles some interesting topics uh, and some very adult topics, uh, but in a really fun kind of action packed way. Um, I mean, we're looking at alien civilizations, you know, traveling through space at the speed of light as digital information, arriving on Earth, we're looking at environmental issues and touching on, you know, the basics of what it means to be human um, and where we're going, where humanity is headed for in the future. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting. I mean, what you also sort of teamed up with uh, Steve Cole to write it, who's done a lot of um, Doctor Who fiction. How, how did that come about and how did the... Um what was the inspiration for, for writing the novel in the first place? Well, the, working with Steve has just been incredible. I mean, he's such a professional. He's so fun to work with and, and he's got such a brilliant imagination. So we have a huge amount of fun just um, having these Zoom calls where we bounce ideas off each other. And before we know it, we're just having a lot of fun creating uh, these, these, these fun adventures. Um, and that really was a pairing through my agency. They knew Steve and they knew the work he did and thought, you know, you two guys are going to be great together. And, and it has worked out really, really well. Um, um, the inspiration from the book, it came from a number of things, really, over many, many years. I mean, I've, I've got two young boys. They're now 12 and nine. Uh, and I love reading to them. I love kids' stories. You know, I find them really exciting and interesting. And I like seeing what makes them tick. Very Two, two very different children. So different things make each one uh, tick. And so I had this idea to write a children's novel. And the inspiration really came from various bits of information I was getting. I was going to briefings. I was listening to podcasts like The Infinite Monkey Cage and, and hearing these things. Neuroscientists talking about the potential for, you know, could we really simulate a human brain? And actually, yes, if we had a supercomputer, we could. And, uh, and Lord Martin Reed astronomer royal talking about if we're going to find intelligent life it's very likely to be in the form of an electronic signal you know coming from space and kind of thinking yeah well you know why not why why didn't aliens do this millions and millions of years ago and and how would they have done it and why would they have done it what would they be doing about it uh and let's create this incredible story around it so the inspirations come from many different places so when you were when you were writing the novel did you sort of bounce ideas off off your kids and sort of read extracts to them to get, get their feedback yeah, oh, very much so. We were living in Germany when I was based in Cologne there with the European Space Agency, and we had a camping trip to Slovenia. And uh, there was a long drive. And so I thought, right, you know, we've got eight hours now to talk to the kids and, and get as much out of it. So so I was running them through the storyline and finding out what they found interesting and fun and what they didn't and what they'd like to see. So they had a huge input to it. Uh, and what about your sort of like your your own inspiration? I mean, what, what were the what were the sort of sci-fi novels that you enjoyed growing up and, and sort of still enjoy to this this day, or indeed the sort of the the uh, TV and the and the movies that sort of pl- played a part in the inspiration for the book? I, I've always really enjoyed sci-fi, and people say uh, when they talked about space movies, they said, "Don't you find it frustrating when they get so much wrong?" And I said, "No, because you know it's about the enjoyment, it's about entertainment, it's about letting your imagination run wild." And it might not be, you know, scientifically correct, but that's not the point. The point is to have fun and be creative uh, and, and and think outside the box. So I've always loved, um, you know, sci-fi movies. I grew up with Star Trek, Star Wars. Um, you know, I love that kind of thing. Uh, and um, really, this is just an extension of that, is just allowing my imagination to run wild. 
Are, are you a Doctor Who fan? Was, was, was that something that sort of drew you to working with? A huge Doctor Who fan, yes. Yeah, I mean, Tom Baker was was the Doctor Who when I was growing <laughs> up, but I've, I've loved every Doctor Who since, and thankfully, so do my boys. So, you know, it's always a pleasure to sit down with them and watch Doctor Who even today. <laughs> I was really interested also um, with in Swarm Rising with the sort of... Uh, ecological focus and, and the climate change it's, it's sort of also about the sort of uh, fr- fragility of earth really isn't it it very much is i mean that's the underlying theme and um again you know when he's talking about inspiration some of it comes from my thoughts um when i was out on the spacewalk and and kind of processing what it means to be human looking back on planet earth and that that sort of contradiction between on the one hand feeling tiny and insignificant uh, when you're surrounded by the vastness of the universe in every direction and you just think yeah really we are just you know very very small and then think well actually we're not we're not we are the universe you know the universe created us from neutron stars from supernova from 13.8 billion years of, of universal evolution uh, and we are complex organisms that have a consciousness and can now think about the universe, think about our place. And that makes us incredibly special. We may well not be the only life form in the universe. I don't think so. I think there's billions of of, of life forms. But at the moment, that makes us really special. And so it is that kind of feeling of, well, Earth is a, a cradle of life. It's an, it's one of the locations in the universe where life can flourish, and that makes Earth really important. And Earth is something to be protected and nurtured for the remainder of its life because it has this potential to you know to to generate life and and to have life forms evolve. And so that's what the swarm's doing. You know, they're they're interested in the planet. They're not so much interested in the humans. Uh, I mean, that's kind of a little bit interesting for them. But Earth is more interesting. It's a cradle of life within the universe. (laughs) Yeah, I have heard um, lots of sort of astronauts who've been in the ISS talking about that and sort of looking down on Earth and sort of realising that, I suppose suppose things like um, national boundaries and and all these and and sort of the the names we give to countries and continents, that must just all sort of melt away, does it, when you're just looking at the, the blue globe? It does. Uh, I mean, it really puts it into perspective. You just see the, uh, the and also this, um, the difference between day and night. I mean, in day, there's no signs of human habitation. So you kind of, you get this impression of, of what Earth has looked like for billions of years. And then nighttime comes along and it's like, wow, you know, there's signs of human life everywhere. Cities, towns, motorways, uh, lights at, at sea, you know, fishing vessels. So um, you get this, uh, again, contradiction of, of what the planet might be, might look like with no signs of human habitation at all. And, and it, you do just realise that we're all sharing the same atmosphere. We're just one, you know, uh, one species living on one planet and, and you don't see any borders, absolutely. It gives you a very different perspective of the planet. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, um, I was also going to ask you about the actual physical um, experience of, of doing a spacewalk. Um what what was that actually like? Because because presumably there's no sort of up or down. Like um, Earth could be above you, or it could be below you, or it could be beside you. What, what what's that actually like? Um, actually do, doing that EVA. And it's really interesting because you get very used to that inside the space station. And within just a couple of weeks, you can be flinging yourself around in every module upside down all over the place, and and your brain is just able to really switch and and work that out. 
going outside on a spacewalk is completely different. And, and because you're in this new environment and you're so um, exposed, um, it's, it, it's actually very hard for your brain to work out where you are. And it's very easy for astronauts beco- to become, you know, lost out there and to become disorientated. We have black arrows all over the space station on the outside with arrows pointing back to the airlock. So, you know, if you get yourself a little bit unsure of your position and circumstance, um, which sounds, sounds strange, in the daytime, of course, you've always got the Earth to look at. But at nighttime over the Pacific, it's pitch black. You're surrounded just by a small pool of light from your helmet lights. That's all you've got. Uh, and space looks very dark and scary. And the space station is a very big place the size of a football pitch. So, yeah, you can get a little bit disorientated out there. But it must also be like just completely um, psychologically and physically exhausting doing a, a four and a half hour spacewalk. It is. I mean, it's it's an environment where you have to concentrate more than, uh, you know, anything else I've done in my life, even on high risk uh, flight trials. You know, there'll be periods where you have very, very intense moments of concentration. But on a spacewalk, you're having to maintain that level of concentration for hours at a time. Um, and at the same time, you're trying to think ahead. You're trying to make sure everything goes well, but you cannot lose focus on what you're doing right now. Uh, and also, you're you know, keeping half an eye on what your buddy is doing and where they are and listening to all the communications going on. So this ability to have situational awareness and concentration, these are uh, skills that are tested right back at astronaut selection. On the very first day of astronaut selection, these are the kind of skills that they're testing for. And spacewalking is a prime example where we might need to use those skills. Did, did, you, did you have any sort of hair-raising moments where you, you know, sweat got in your eye or anything like that? So yeah, there there are times when you notice you're working a bit uh, a bit hard and you're starting to sweat. That's where you've got to really regulate your body temperature um, because you cannot afford to have you know sweat dripping in your eye and stuff like that. And uh, uh, that certainly happened in, in one eye. I started to get a little bit of sweat in your eye. No, because that's that's a nightmare. Then your eye starts watering and it escalates. Um, and also, I had one moment where at the very end of the spacewalk where Tim Copra had to go in first, I switched over to be EV1 because he had water coming into his helmet and had to terminate it. And there was a moment there where I, I wasn't sure that I'd clipped on. I pushed away from the, from the airlock because I needed to use both hands. And for a split second, I just thought, did I clip on? And it was it was the worst <laughs> moment in my life because I was only two feet away from the hatch, but I was floating in space. And I just thought, if I didn't clip on, then we're in big trouble. Thankfully, I'd <laughs> clipped on. But it just goes to show you could never lose concentration. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it must just... Does it feel like that, that the, the whole time you're on the ISS? Do you, do you ever really relax, you know, even when you're, when, you're, when you're inside the space station? I don't think you ever really relax, and that's important not to really. I think you've always, uh, you've always got to maintain awareness of where you are because, you know, the moment that piece of debris strikes and the space station starts depressurizing, you've got to be able to respond instantly or ammonia comes into the atmosphere. You need to know exactly where the nearest uh, breathing apparatus is. Um, and so that places a kind of low-level stress on you for the entire six months. Um, so no, I don't think you do ever switch off or relax. But you've got to, you know, you've got to have periods where you recharge your batteries. At the weekends, we drop the tempo. Um, uh, we, uh, during the week, we're working extremely hard. But you've always got to have something in the tank so that you can react if something goes wrong. Yeah, I mean, when you were up there, um, you know, we at uh, Skynet Magazine, we just, we had, we had great fun sort of keeping in, keeping up to date with what you were up to. And 
some of, some of the stuff that you did was really really cool. Like I remember you watching um, a Six Nations game and you ran the London Marathon, and then there was the um, being chased by Scott Kelly in the in the in the gorilla space. <laughs> and it's it's sort of really made it clear sort of how far we've come from the sort of cramped conditions of the Apollo of the Apollo modules, you know, where everything was really sort of cramped and. But now you can actually sort of spread out and have fun, can't you? Absolutely. It's about, it's about normalising the environment. And that's important for us as astronauts so that you can work effectively. You can't spend six months kind of in awe and wonder and being overwhelmed by your circumstances. So we try and normalise it as much as possible. And that means relaxing. That means having a fun and enjoying your time up there. Um, and I think what it what helps uh, today is that we have such great communications is people can now see it. Uh, we've got video downlinks. We've got internet. We've got Wi-Fi uh, and people can share in the experience and you know we're getting to the point where you know more people are going to experience space which is fantastic so no I, I think it's 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 really exciting as to where we are currently on the space station and where we're going in the future. What about the uh, serious work that you were doing up there the, 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 the science experiments what was that what were your duties as far as that was concerned? Yeah, but it's, you know, we are responsible for running the ISS as a microgravity laboratory, as the astronauts. That's our job, is to try and get through as many experiments as possible to keep things running efficiently and smoothly. So in any one day, we might be touching 10 different experiments that people have spent years and years working on. Um, and our role is to make sure that they all run as accurately and as correctly as possible. So it can be quite stressful. There's lots of following procedures and you have to be really careful what you're doing. You have to work fast but you have to work accurately um, you also it's, it's fun to know what you're doing so you have to read up about the experiments to understand the implications of, of if things don't go right um, uh, so it's, it's a, such a rewarding environment to work in though because one minute you might be doing some protein crystal growth experiment that you know is going to create new drugs that's going to help people with motor neurone disease or Parkinson's and then the next minute you're in the airlock doing a, uh, an experiment on um, airway inflammation and that's going to help asthma suffer or you might be doing material science where you're creating new metal alloys that are going to make, you know, potentially new aircraft turbine blades lighter and stronger and more efficient. Um, uh, or you're developing new sustainable systems for breathing, um, carbon dioxide scrubbing, wa water purification and production. So every day you're just touching these things that you think this is fantastic. This is having huge benefit for people back on Earth. And it's a real privilege to, to work in that environment ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply yeah, definitely. It also sort of makes you think that um, a lot of the um, kids who are sort of reading Swarm Rising and and and, and your other books and, and and getting interested, it's it's probably it's probably sort of um, very inspiring to them and makes them want to get involved. I mean, um, in the in the space program, you know, and, and be astronauts and space engineers and things like that. Um, what what sort of advice would would you give? Presumably, you have to sort of study science and maths, and maybe eventually at some point learn, learn a bit of Russian. You know. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing is when I come back, and I get the opportunity to talk to, to students and, and children and, and, and try and give them some advice for the future. And, and space is something that most people find really fascinating, which is wonderful. And so um, if people want to get involved in science and tech and engineering, then I, I really encourage that, not just from a point of view of the potential for working in the space industry, but as we all know, we are just surrounded by technology right now and the pace of development is phenomenal. And it doesn't matter if you're going to have a career in science or if you're going to go into art or literature or drama, you know, you are going to be working with technology. So if you study those subject, subjects at school, you're really setting yourself up well for the future. You're giving yourself the maximum opportunity for being successful. But at the heart of everything, it's about you know being passionate at what you do. So you've got to try and find out what it is that makes you click, and that's my biggest message: is you know um, you know find out what it is that you're passionate about. That's what you're going to be really good at. <laughs> do you, I mean? Do you think that your your own kids have sort of been in, inspired to, to to follow in their in their father's footsteps? Uh, I think my eldest might. He he certainly loves the idea of becoming a pilot, um, and so I'm going to you know obviously encourage him in, in that. Uh, my youngest is a uh, great engineer, so you know he might go on to do something like that. But I'm also keen to just let them find their own way, try and expose them to as much as possible, and just try and encourage them to try things. I mean, I as a as a kid, I bounced around doing all sorts of stuff before I kind of settled down and found out what it is that I like to do. And that's completely normal. Um, some people realize in their teens, some people realize in their 20s, some people don't realize until their 30s. You know, um, the, the point is to try and just experience different things so you get a flavor of, of what it is you like to do. Um, given your, your, your sort of um, all the knowledge and experience that, that, that you've built up through, through being an astronaut and being in the ISS, um, did, did you ever think about writing, you know, fiction based on the ISS or, or, or based around spaceflight? Uh, oh yeah, no, I mean it's it's something I've enjoyed because I've enjoyed reading you know fiction books and sci- sci-fi books uh, so much. So yes, absolutely. You you know you get inspired by this these environments. I've got I've got plenty more ideas <laughs> as to some some great adult fiction uh, stories that are going to be space based. Um, and again, it's just an environment where you know you can you can really imagine you know let your imagination run wild. And and certainly um, Swarm Rising uh, and the Swarm series of books has got a uh, hopefully a long future ahead because there's there's plenty more fun to be had with the swarm ah so it's it's, it's going to be a series there's, there's going to be like uh, future installments well we, we've definitely got swarm enemy coming after swarm rising uh and okay. then and then you know watch this space <laughs> great um yeah just just to go back to sort of life and, and working on, on the iss one of the things i i i always think is um Life on the ISS must be pretty cool, but the actual launching and landing, it must just be absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I mean, maybe not for, obviously not for someone with your training and everything, but, you know, for the average person, it would just be absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, if you if you went into it without any training, it would be terrifying, uh, and um, and it would be terrifying for anybody to do that. But that, that's that's part of what we do is going into the centrifuge, you know, building up those G forces so we know what to expect. Uh, training in the simulator. Uh, so that by the time we actually come to launch and re-entry, we pretty much know what it's going to 
be like. The interesting thing is the simulators don't give you all the kind of bangs and whistles of what's going on. And there's the, you know, launch is exciting, um, but you expect that. And the centrifuge, you know, gives you that experience. But re-entry is actually far more dynamic. You know, there's pyrotechnic bolts being blown apart, the spacecraft's tumbling, parachutes opening faster than the speed of sound. Uh, I mean, the, the simulator doesn't give you any of that. So that <laughs> is a really fun experience. And the night before coming back to Earth, um, Jeff Williams, my NASA crewmate on board, he kind of just said, right, I'm going to talk you through re-entry because, you know, this is what you don't know. <laughs> and it was great that he did that because there were several points where you know he said if you're not expecting this you'll think you'll think it's catastrophic it's not that's normal um so it's it's good we, you know as astronauts we talk to each other and we let people know what's going to happen i mean th- there have been some amazing stories over the years haven't there of um like the one that sticks in the mind is uh, alexei leonov the first man to spacewalk and you know he ended up obviously having a horrendous time getting through Earth's atmosphere and landing in the siberian wilderness and fending off bears and all sort of stuff did, did you were you aware of, well you obviously were aware of those stories but were, were, were stories like that sort of uh, in the back of your mind? Well, yeah, and, and I had the huge privilege of, of meeting Alexei, and, and he actually waved us off uh, from the cos- uh, Cosmodrome in uh, Star City before heading down to Baikonur. And um, uh, when we go do our survival training in Russia, uh, in the woods there, in the winter time, you know, the, these are the reasons why we're, we're doing it. And our instructors, you know, go to, to length to explain to us where we could land and, and what could happen and how long it might take. So, yeah, we do get uh, we do get told those stories and we certainly it puts a, a good <laughs> emphasis on why we need to do all that training. And then once you finally land, presumably your, your legs are like jelly. How, how long does it take to, to get to back to normal? Yeah, well, do you know, it's interesting because your muscles are still quite in quite good condition because we exercise so much on the space station. Um, so you've got the strength. What you haven't got is you haven't got the balance and you haven't got core stability because that's one area that we find really hard to exercise on the space station. But, um, you know, you can stand up okay and you can physically, you can walk, but you just feel a little unsteady on your feet. And certainly your, for me anyway, my vestibular system was messed up for a good two to three days. Um, where my head was spinning. Uh, it was really unpleasant to kind of move my head from side to side or to do this. Um, you just, the whole world was turning upside down. And I just think that's because, you know, the whole brain is trying to get used to gravity again. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was speaking to a um, sort of um, geneticist quite recently who had made the argument that we might need to do some sort of um, resequencing of, of human genes in order to be able to survive sort of long, long-term long space flight to Mars and things like that. I mean, do, do you think that the, 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 the science that we're doing in the ISS with regards to long duration of space flight is enough? Or, or do you think that it, it is going to take something really drastic to enable the human body to survive long, long, long journeys? I think I think we've got Mars nailed um, in yeah. terms yeah. of I think yeah so I mean I, when I arrived on the space station Scott Kelly Misha Kornienko were eight months into their year long stay in great shape physically psychologically um, you know that's that's about the, the the journey length to Mars the maximum um, and uh, yeah they would have been they would have coped just fine going down to the surface of the planet you might feel a little rough for the first couple of days but certainly you're well enough to cope with setting up a habitation module going through the basics of, of getting yourself uh, into a, a survivable situation so I think Mars is um, 
And certainly within our uh, you know, capabilities with current technology, we have to get better at radiation protection in our spacecraft, but that's just a technology, uh, a technical point to overcome. I think further exploration to the solar system, you're absolutely right. The problem is, of course, that the human body is brilliant. Our body is brilliant at adapting to new environments and it, it tries to adapt to weightlessness far too well. Uh, and we're trying to stop that from happening if we want to go and work in a gravity environment. So, you know, centrifuges on spacecraft for the future for long duration missions, revolving sections that enable us to kind of maintain some sort of uh, G environment, then that, that could be essential. But what about the sort of the uh, psychological impacts as well? Does, does that worry you? Um, I think it, it, it doesn't worry me because, uh, you know, we just need to make sure that we select people who are going to be able to cope with those environments and those circumstances. And we've built up a huge amount of expertise over the years in understanding the kind of psychological profile that is required for long duration spaceflight. It is going to be a factor. I mean, the last two weeks of my mission were very, very different because we had to close all the hatches. Uh, there was a, a risk of, of um, some fuel leaking and, and impacting on the hatches. So the space station suddenly became a very different place with all the hatches closed. You know, you don't, you no longer have the view of Earth. Um, you feel very isolated, uh, very sort of self-contained. And that's going to be the case on a mission to Mars. And Earth is going to become just a small sort of speck of light in the night sky. So psychologically, it will be, um, it will be interesting. But I think that we have the, you know, the, enough knowledge to be selecting the right people for the job. Hmm. Yeah, I was also wanting to get your thoughts on um, the um, prospect of creating a sort of a permanent human settlement on the moon. I mean, do you think that that's necessary? Do, do, do you think it's a good idea? And would your would your astronaut class be be um, in, in line for being being part of that mission? Yeah, I, I, I do think it's the next logical step in our progression. I mean, there's also a strong argument for going straight to Mars um, as, as a destination that we want to go to. I think that, uh, you know, operations on the lunar surface, we're always going to be, you know, that is such a, an obvious place for us to, to experiment, to live and work for long duration. And the moon has so much to offer in terms of knowledge of the, the solar system. It's a, you know, this, this environment that's been exposed uh, uh, and, and and we've only scratched the surface, really, in terms of what the moon uh, can offer in terms of the, the water at the poles, for example, the areas of permanent sunlight at the south uh, pole around the craters. Um, and so I think it's a natural location to de-risk future long-duration missions, to go there, uh, to set up habitation modules, to experiment with 3D printing techniques, inflatable or foldable uh, habitation modules, to really get our you know surface operations um, very slick, very safe before making the much longer transition to Mars where we won't have the ability to have resupply missions. Yeah. And I, I suppose, you know, all of this, uh, the, the success of the ISS and the sort of future success of the Moon and Mars missions depends on, on, the, on, the, on the sort of international collaboration that has been fostered. Um, and you, with regard to that, you, you do sort of think of the Apollo-Soyuz missions and the Russians and the Americans finally coming together and then the Americans having to use the Soyuz and that becoming part of that collaboration. Do you, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the commercial crew program and, and the prospect of Americans once again launching from America. Do, do you think that the Americans and the Russians will, will lose that sense of sort of um, collaboration? 
I don't think they'll lose that sense of collaboration. I think the collaborations will change. Uh, and I think it's going to be an interesting environment. But in terms of, you know, that partnerships, we've obviously with the Artemis program, we're maintaining a strong partnership between NASA, ESA, JAXA, Canadian Space Agency. Uh, and we're working closely with our Russian colleagues on the International Space Station and future development so that everything's compatible. That's what you want is compatibility. So even if different nations are doing different things or have different priorities or different objectives, we're all going to be working in that space environment. We all want the potential for you know, collaboration in certain areas. Um, and I think that we're going to see that over the years as we you know, develop our exploration of the moon and as we go on for missions to Mars as well. And that relationship is also equal to commercial partnerships. Um, you know, the Artemis program will rely on uh, SpaceX, on uh, Blue Origin, for example, of delivering large components of, uh, of either the surface mo- uh, habitation modules or potentially the gateway in orbit around the moon. Um, and that partnership will continue as well. So I think it's going to be a really interesting and exciting environment. But we are going to see, we're going to have to see, you know, that collaboration continue because, um, you know, space is a tough and hostile environment and and if we don't work together then nobody's going to succeed yeah and uh, what are the um implications of the commercial program for uh, esa astronauts um, well, the commercial crew program is obviously essential because we now are flying on that. We've seen Thomas Pesquet launch aboard SpaceX. Uh, we have Matthias Maurer later this year who will launch on another SpaceX. And, um, you know, a lot of our future European astronauts will be launching on the commercial crew program. There's still the possibility that we'll have Europeans launch on the Soyuz. Um, and who knows? Maybe Europe will decide that it's time to have our own access to space uh, in terms of human space flight. Um, um, so it's it's yeah it's a it's a key component and and it goes back to that whole collaboration we're trying to you know uh, hand over low Earth orbit in some respects to commercial companies so that the space agencies can focus resources on deep space exploration. Fantastic. I I did just want to finish by by sort of going back to um, Swarm Rising because the sort of um, the ecological message of it is really, really important. And um, I wanted to get your thoughts on that, taking what we've learned about Earth and protecting Earth forward as, as we go to sort of um, potentially colonize, for want of a better word, Mars and the moon and sort of pristine, pristine, you know, cosmic objects. Do, do you think there are, there are lessons to be learned? And are, are you in, in any way worried about what humans might actually do to Mars when, when they get there? Um, I'm actually more encouraged now. I think that we've gone through this phase of, um, you know, our initial steps of exploration where we're just trying to achieve getting into space in the 60s and 70s. That was the goal. It was so hard. It was so difficult. And, um, you know, the environmental impact wasn't at the forefront of people's minds. Now we've got over half a million pieces of space debris floating around in low Earth orbit. And people are really waking up to the fact that if we carry on like this, space will no longer become usable by humans. We will be surrounded by a cloud of debris that will actually stop us getting off our own planet. And it will stop commercial companies launching anything new into space. And, and then that, so there's a financial uh, financial incentive as well as an ecological incentive to protect that v- environment. And we're now really seeing that amongst governments, amongst agencies and amongst commercial companies. So uh, I am quite optimistic that the technologies I'm seeing now in terms of 
clean fuels for rockets um, that can get you know have really low carbon impact uh, in terms of recovering pieces of debris, in terms of developing you know, space tugs, space debris removal techniques, um, and clearing up. Uh, you know, the space environment and taking those messages forward. I mean, whenever we send a rover to Mars, for example, uh, we spend you know, a huge amount of effort in making sure that it is not going to contaminate that surface, that, you know, it is going to remain a pristine environment and doing it in a sensible uh, and clean, clever way. I think that we need to be a bit better on our regulation. At the moment, we're relying on, you know, uh, agencies to do that uh, and um, commercial companies to, to, to do that. But we don't really have any strict regulation in, in place. So I think that's an area that we need to focus on to make sure that we regulate the environment and we make sure people adhere, companies adhere to it, individuals and agencies adhere to that. Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating talking to you about, about all this stuff and, um it, it does sort of give you sort of um, quite an optimistic view on, on the future for space. But it's, it's looking quite good at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> I think it is looking really good. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think we're going to see a really exciting 10 years in space. Um, I mean, I, I was born in 72, so I didn't get to see, you know, humans walk on the moon. So I'm really excited about <laughs> the prospect of watching humans, you know, walk on the moon. Who knows? Even getting the opportunity to do it myself. And um, hopefully in my lifetime as well, seeing humans land on Mars. I mean, that's going to be phenomenal. And, and I think as a species as well, it will really, you know, open people's eyes up into, you know, what we can achieve, what is possible, uh, and also what is out there. Um, and that's why, you know, come back to Swarm Rising, that's why it's really exciting to, to write about that kind of thing, because it's about to come into people's, you know, forefront of their minds once again. Fantastic. Well, um, yeah, Tim, it's been great speaking to you today. And, um, you know, good luck with the book. I think it's a, I think it'll be out just as this sort of podcast goes out. Um, um, so, yeah, good, good luck with that. And, um, yeah, good, good luck with your, all your future endeavours. Thanks for, thanks for speaking to us today. Thanks very much. Great talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Collie. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. Spotify.